Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend in the Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf for the day, Shabbat Nun Dalit, 54. Uh, before we delve into this daf, I just want to make mention of two things. First, it's Hey Yar, um, and we want to wish everybody a happy Yom HaTzma'ut. Um, wherever you are, uh, wherever you are and however you're celebrating today, we know many of us are celebrating in unique and different circumstances, uh, but wherever you're learning with us to think about the miracle of what Israel is today and what it means to us. Um, that leads me to the second thing I want to mention, which is Hayar being uh, the yurt site of a woman named Anna Rutner and her daughter, Bracha Rutner, Yoetzad Halakha Bracha Rutner, who's a dear friend of mine and Anne. Um, has honored us by allowing our learning today to be in her memory and dedicating today's uh, podcast episode um, in her memory. Her Hebrew name is Sarah Bat Yom Tov Rachel. So as we learn today's staff, please keep her in mind. Uh, we just want to share a little bit about Bracha's mother, Anna. Um, she came to the United States in 1956 when she was 12 years old and actually didn't know any English at all. Um, and education was always something that was important to her. She graduated Boston University with honors um, and became a, a very uh, well-known educator where she lived in Silver Spring, um, and she taught nursery school. Um, and Bracha says that even today she meets people who say you're that, you know, ask her if she's more Anna's daughter, um, and really was a person who loved Judaism, Torah, and ritual, and particularly like this mitzvah of Sfirat HaOmer, which we're in the period of now. Um, and we'll speak about her a little bit more um, as we go through our podcast. Um, and I'm going to hand it off to you because uh, there's something we want to talk about actually from yesterday's stuff that the two of us thought of uh, later on after we, uh, you know, had finished the episode. Right. So I want to talk about this one-armed woman and her, we thought, perhaps oblivious husband, right, where the Gemara said in yesterday's Daphne and Gimel, the Gemara says that he was so tsanua that he did not notice that she had only one arm. And we found this to be a bit of a difficult reality. Unfortunately, I'm dismayed to realize that it took until, you know, this morning for me to realize, to process the fact that Perhaps she simply was handicapped and the comment of, you know, and she was truly one arm, but and the comment of him not taking notice of this was, you know, a point in his honor, really, right, that he was not in any way affected or struck by, did not treat her as disabled, did not notice her to be any differently abled, right, in such a way that really we could just say this is testimony to the closeness of the relationship between the two of them. And on the one hand, that's not exactly the wording of the Gemara. And on the other hand, I think it really might be the pshat. It might really be the plain, plain sense of the term because the otherwise it didn't make sense. That's what was so odd yesterday. And again, I'm I'm kind of abashed that it took so long to, to come around to that possibility. But here we are and, you know, take it for what it is. I think that there's, I think- there's I would just something add one thing it. to that is that I think okay. that's actually what the concept of Sneut is is that modesty is we don't have to say everything that we see. And maybe that's what it's saying nicely about this husband is that even though his wife, you know, may have had this disability, it just wasn't mentioned. It wasn't what was the focus of their relationship or of their marriage. So, um, you know, maybe that's another way to understand why the word sanu is used in that context. 
Okay, now we're going to go on. We're again, we're in Nundalid, and we're actually going to jump straight to Nundalid Amidbet because it's another daf with so much on it that we cannot hope to touch on all the different topics of it. So I'm going straight to the Mishnah that's on Nundalid Amidbet, um, where we're, we're still we're still talking about animals, and we're still talking about animals on Shabbat, and we're still talking about what they can and cannot go out into the public domain, uh, wearing, carrying, whatever. Here we go. A donkey may not go out with a saddle cloth, which is not tied onto it. But I guess once it's tied onto it, then you could say he's, it's kind of part of the donkey. But in this case, it would not be permitted just as a, I don't know, leaning, not leaning, wrapped on his belly, on his back, I guess. afal um, Okay, not just not with a saddlecloth, but not also, also not with a bell. And the bell, even if it is um, tied down, if the clapper is tied down so that it won't ring, still he can't wear it, nor with a ladder when it's around his neck, nor with a strap that is around his leg. The mission continues. And Roosters or chickens cannot go out with strings or straps to their attached to their legs. The ein has charim yotzim ba'agalat shetachat ha'aliyah shelahen and the the one second and the rams cannot go out if they've got a wagon under the tails. The ein rechalim yotzim chanunot and the lambs or ewes right the female lambs cannot go out. Chanunot, the, the term here is going to be explained. The Gemara, it's not an obvious, easy translation term. Likewise, the Gimon is going to be translated or explained later. A calf cannot go out wearing this thing. And a cow cannot go out with the skin of a hedgehog. I don't understand yet why it would be having... We do not understand yet why it would be in the context of the skin of a hedgehog. Nor with a strap between its horns. Paratoshal Rebbe Elazar ben Azaria Haita Yotza Bertsuasha ben Karnea Jelo Bertson Chachamim. And but the cow that belonged to Rebbe Elazar ben Azaria says the Mishnah would in fact go out with a strap between its horns, not according, not in in accord with the will of the Chachamim. So this, of course, needs unpacking. Not all of the details of it, because again, some of it is going to be particular to the animal husbandry or whatever of that era. But but this last line, right, is going to demand our attention because it is such a dramatic st- statement and in a Mishnah, no less, right? The idea that any of Chazal would go contrary to the behavior of Chachamim. Now, I'm going to just look quickly at the Gemara that talks the, about the beginning of the Mishnah, but I want to pay attention to what does it mean that all of these animals cannot go out, whatever, with any of these contraptions on them, right? The implication, I think, is, I mean, look, it's not so much about the animals, right? It's about if you, and I keep thinking about this in the context of all of us being, you know, sheltered at home, and the idea that there's so much that we can't do easily, right, by virtue of, by virtue of not being able to, I don't know, like, take any of these other items with us, let's say, right? That's, I'm going to read the Gemara, and my thinking, I hope, will become more clear. My Tama, Kedamran, the Gemara says, what's the reason, what's the rationale that a donkey cannot go out on Shabbat with a saddlecloth that is not tied to its back? The Gemara says, 
Well, it already was to the Amaran. It was already explained explained previously that the saddlecloth is liable to fall off the animal's back, and then the owner may come to pick it up, and that's in the public domain, and that would be carrying. Okay, so that's pretty clear, like a regular, lest you come to do the uh, the prohibited thing. The Gemara goes on. With a bell, you can't, with, with a bell that's even plugged up, stopped up so it won't ring. It says, because the person, the owner, looks like he's going out to the market or whatever. The fact that there's the bell is not ringing is not enough to prevent the animal to, from looking like it's the going to market animal with its bell that is ringing. Which brings me to my point of by prohibiting, and this is really what is interesting to me here, by the animals being prohibited from all of these um, accoutrements in their travels, really what's happening is the people themselves are not their owners are not being allowed to go out to market or whatever, do any of these things that might be iffy, that maybe somebody might be tempted to do. They might be able to get away with it, ah, but now they can't, right? Because not only are, is the person not allowed to go out to market, but their animal isn't allowed to look as if it's going out to market. And I think that these like greater fences upon fences I'm not, I'm not saying that it's built as a fence. It's built as a prohibition, prohibition straight up. But what happens is that the prohibition on the animal functions as a fence against the person's violation of other halachot. And I think that there's something um, pretty profound in the idea of establishing a community that keeps Shabbat in the way that the Gemara wants Shabbat to be kept. And so therefore, every which way you can establish a parameter to prevent or to make sure that that happens, to prevent it from not happening, that that is now being put into place by this Gemara. I, no, there's definitely the whole chapter, you know, about this idea of how we treat our animals or what our animals do. Even that creates a particular atmosphere around how Shabbat is kept. And I'm actually finding it very moving. Again, at this ag piece of agriculture or something I don't know anything about at all. Um, but like how important to detail it was. It's not just a concept of, you know, our animals can't do malacha. It's really taking into consideration, you know, every single part of an animal and being very detailed and very thorough through it. And I think it shows uh, what love and respect there was for Keith. And also, you know, how when we have the pasuk of, you know, you know, lo you know, every single part of your household had to participate in the celebration of Shabbat. It's an overall atmosphere that's created. It's not just about how, how you and the individual does it. Um, and I think that then gets to this interesting part at the end of the Mishnah, right? Which says, Paratosha Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah, Haita Yotza Beritu'ash ben Karneha that the cow of Rebbe Elezer ben Azariah used to go out with a strap between her horns, and this was not uh, what the Chachamim wanted to have happen. Now, I think we should just go back a little bit and remind ourselves um, who Rebbe Elezer ben Azariah, um, you know, was. And if we remember him, he was who replaced Rebbe Gamliel as the Nasi, that was the very famous Gemara, the one that I couldn't wait to get to on Brachot that started on Dab Chav Zayin and goes on to Dab Chav Chet. And if we remember Rabbi Lezer ben Azariah, there were three characteristics of him 
about why he was chosen to be the replacement Nasi, right? Um, he was a Talmud Chacham. Um, he, and also he was not involved in the Machlokas. So I think it wasn't just that he wasn't involved in the Machlokas, but he also, you know, he didn't seem to have Borges with anybody. Um, he also was wealthy, right? Because they said from a political point of view, that was going to be important. Um, and lastly, he had good yichus, right? He could, uh, his lineage was good. He could trace himself. Uh, he was a 10th generation from Ezra, from Ezra HaSofer. And so the Gemara here uh, wants to go on about and unpack the story a little bit. And it says, So the Gemara asks, is it possible that he only had one cow? And again, remember, we know that we said before that he, uh, you know, was very wealthy. And didn't Rab say, Right, that Rav said, and some say it was Rav Yehuda who said in the name of Rav. So these are Amorayim talking about this particular Tana. Okay, that Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria used to, when he would give Maser, he would give 12,000 calves from his herd every year. Okay, so this is the mitzvah of Maser Behema, right? That you would have to give a tenth of your newborn animals. And if you could give 12,000, that means you were obviously very wealthy and had um, many, many animals here. So the Gemara goes on and therefore says the following Tana, Lo Shalo Haita. So they said it wasn't, Brisa elaborates on what this Mishnah is talking about here. And it wasn't his cow that went out with the strap, but rather it was a neighbor of his, right? Um, it was a female neighbor of his. Um, and because he didn't protest against her, it was called his cow. Um, and, you know, I, the Gemara then gets into a very interesting discussion afterwards, which we'll read a little bit more about. Um, which, uh, you know, talks about this idea that, you know, somebody, if you see somebody doing something that you shouldn't do, you know, is it important for you to stand up and let them know that they're transgressing? Um, this kind of is an amazing thing that they're saying about Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, um, you know, that it was sort of that because he, he saw that his neighbor's cow was doing something, wasn't keeping Shabbos the correct way, the cow, right? The, 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 the owner was letting the cow go out with this strap that they shouldn't have gone out with, it was his job as the neighbor to sort of tell this woman. And, you know, she and he decided for whatever reason, he decided not to. And the Chachamim didn't like this. The truth is, is that I think as we learn more and more about Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria, and certainly the way when we uh, saw how he was portrayed in that Gemara, and particularly in Brachot Dab Chavchet, he has a very conciliatory personality, right? He, the big thing that he did when he becomes the Nasi is he opens up the Beit Midrash to everybody. And the implication was, was that, um, you know, Reverend Gamliel sort of tried to keep people out, right? Everybody had to be, the students had to be their inside, had to be like their outside. And Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah said, no, anybody's allowed to come and anybody's allowed to learn. And he was able to sort of sit with a particular type of tension that that atmosphere creates where there's machlokas, right? There has to be machlokas. If you're letting everybody in, you're going to have a diversity of opinion. Um, so I, to me, it's interesting that it's Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria um, who uh, does this because I think it is, and we'll see this with other Gemaras, 
it's consistent with sort of his conciliatory manner um, that here was a person who seemed to just have this ability to sort of get along with people. And I think many of us in our life, the thought of sort of really going out and telling somebody you did something wrong is not necessarily a way that we would behave or, um, or would interact with people. And I'm not going to read the inside of the rest of the Gemara, but what's interesting is that then the Gemara goes on and continues and, you know, basically says that if you have the ability to tell members of your household, you know, that they're doing something wrong and you don't, you would get punished for those transgressions. And if you could tell the people of your town, if you could stand up to against the people of your town and you don't, then it's like, then you're responsible for those transgressions. And then it even concludes by saying, if you see the entire world, right, transgressing, if you're, you know, and, and you don't, and you don't do something, um, then you would be punished for, um, for the entire, for what the entire world, uh, for what the entire world does. And then it adds as an addendum, uh, sort of this teaching of Rav Papa, which says that the people who lived in the Bay Reish Galuta, remember that was the house that we talked about where they had seen that maybe not everybody kept Shabbos exactly the way that they were supposed to, right? They were punished for uh, all the chataim, for all the transgressions of everybody in the Jew- in everybody in the Jewish world, right? It says Kule Alma of the whole world. Um, so, and then the Gemara goes on to bring a pasuk um, to prove that. So, you know, I'm struck by this. Like on the one hand, I think Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria, particularly in Brachot, is really held to this. Um, we see him as this tremendous figure of being able to create peace. And yet here in this Mishnah and in this Gemara, there's sort of a totally different way of viewing him, which is, you know, that maybe your job is to actually stand up when you see that somebody is not doing something that's right. Um, and I, I don't know, there's a tension to me on the page about that. I think there's a tension in the, in the require, excuse me, in the requirement to rebuke, right? Meaning the idea, uh, I said this when we were preparing, right? That I always quote it from the Sefer HaChinuch, um, although I'm sure it's elsewhere as well, probably the Rambam, because he quotes a lot from the Rambam. Um, the idea that when you stand up to rebuke somebody, the idea is that it has to be accepted, right? Because otherwise, what are you doing? You're just making, you know, you're just bringing a grievance, right? And that's not, that's not effective rebuke, right? So I don't know if Rebelezer ben Azaria was being just nice, or maybe he thought that there was nothing, no way to convey to his neighbor that this was not the way, right way to go. Um, the question of when do you blame the person for not being for not when do we blame the person who did not rebuke for the sins of the person who needed the rebuke i think it's very complicated because because of exactly this question right they say that nobody knows how to give tochacha rebuke properly today right so if that's okay or think about the neviim the prophets of the bible who who were not effective in giving rebuke even though they did right they stood up and they and they 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 broadcast it and yet it was not effective. I think the tension is in the uh, inter human interdynamics, um, which can be very very messy in this kind of topic. Right. Of you're doing the wrong right. thing. So well, I who guess are you again, to tell me you're, that I'm doing the wrong our thing today uh, for Sarah Bat Yom Tov Rachel for Anna Rutner. Another thing her daughter shared with us is is that she would often say that the most important thing is to be a person who has a shame tov who has a good name and that you could have all the riches in the world, 
but what's most important is to be a kind person. And I don't know. I think in a way we see like a particular type of kindness that maybe Rabiela Zerbenazaria had. Um, you know, was it kinder not to point this out? Chachamim don't necessarily view it that way. Um, but I think no matter what, even if we choose to sort of stand up and to tell somebody that they're doing the wrong thing, I think how we do it and to make sure that we do it kindly. Um, and that, again, seems very consistent with Rabbi Eliezer Ben-Azaria's uh, personality. Wait until we get to my other favorite Gemara in Chagiga uh, that talks, shows us even more. I think we'll see that this is really how he <laughs> lived his life was this sort of ability to get along with others um, and, to, you know, and to not necessarily uh, rebuke harshly to, to be, to be kind in his words. Um, I just want to mention two other quick things on the DAF, uh, just about Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azaria. Someone may, you know, ask us, um, and point out correctly that after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, this Maser Behema was actually not done anymore. So just to note that the Tosfos and many of the commentators do spend some time trying to figure out this Brisa, how could Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azaria do this? because he spent most of his adult life after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And again, one of the quick answers that Tosfos gives is, maybe this is talking about when he was a minor and like, you know, it was more his estate was able to do this master behema. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is our friend Yalta, right? Uh, Rabbi Nachman's wife, who we first learned about in that famous uh, Gemara and Bracha, Tafn and Aleph, she reappears on this page. Um, and if you didn't listen to that particular episode, it's, it's, it's Brachot 51. Um, but again, just, we, we mentioned that we're going to continue to see Yalta. And I, I think I'm kind of excited to say, you know, we're sort of to getting into a groove here where many of the people that we're talking about, we're sort of starting to see them reappear. Um, and I think really understand their personalities, uh, better. There's our DAF, for the, DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us review is where you get your podcast. Join us on our WhatsApp group. Come comment on your on our Facebook page. Tell us about your discoveries of on this page or any other page of the Gemara. And uh, thank you to Michelle for hosting us on the Hundred website. And. At-